Hi, uh, I'm Os. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Washington. My work at the moment is really centered on the politics of biomedicine, AI, and surveillance, uh, particularly from a trans and critical disability studies perspective. Um, my current project is, is called Trans Science, and it's basically the history of the interweaving of trans lives and scientific research. I'm here, I guess, today to talk about some of the weirder sites of or more interesting sites of um, data counterpower and data resistance that I've run into through my work. Uh, so if anyone has read any of my earlier work, they'll know that a lot of it is about forms of injustice that occur in relation to data. And that's still an area of, of active and ongoing interest. But at the same time, simply saying that everything is dangerous and then leaving, you can't really build a future out of that. All you can do is critique a future that is already there. You cannot replace hope with critique. You have to be able to weave them together. You have to be able to actually point to um, ways we can use the tools we have to generate new futures, not just to curtail bad ones. And there are a couple of really interesting examples of this in the history and present and future of trans uh, politics and of the research around like trans medical care that I think pose some interesting challenges in a couple of ways to this idea of data is inherently bad or inherently good and there's nothing we can do with it. Instead, kind of demonstrate that not only that there are things that we can do which run counter to prevailing norms of what data will eat the world and it's a good thing, but also that are really older than what we are thinking of as this moment of big data. So a really inadequate summary of trans therapeutics, so that is access to things like hormone replacement therapy and sex reassignment surgery. Traditionally, there are sort of two models. Uh, the first is the gender identity clinic model. Uh, and the second is basically solo medical practitioners. Gender identity clinics, which are much more common in the UK for historic reasons that I don't have time to get into, but please let me know if you want to absolutely nerd out about the history of trans medicine, are highly intensive, multidisciplinary, multi-professional sites of inquiry. They basically are uh, processes of a say and assessment, right? They uh, poke you until you scream, um, and they do so in an intensive way sp uh, spaced over many, many years. Inversely, particularly in the US, you have solo practitioners, so a doctor who just does hormone replacement therapy or just does a particular surgical procedure and isn't really integrated into a broader network of care. But whichever you have, there are very, very big power imbalances. You know, there are very few places that will uh, provide care and provide services. There are even fewer places that actually have expertise, particularly around surgery. And um, if you get dropped by uh, one provider, you know, if you're in the UK, if you get dropped by the NHS, that's it. There is nowhere else that you can go. Uh, if you are dropped by a solo provider in somewhere like the US, you may have to fly literally thousands of miles to find someone else. And all of this creates problems for internal transparency and accountability and, you know, just basic stuff like what is the actual surgical complication rate for the procedure? How good is the surgeon I'm going to? And this isn't actually new or specific to trans surgery. In most countries, there's basically no standardized reporting for surgical complications, simply because working out what constitutes a complication and then putting infrastructure in place to get surgeons to thoughtfully fill out a set of all of the ways in which they screwed up is really, really finicky and a massive political problem. Instead, there's a reliance on uh, follow-up appointments. So if you go to a surgeon and you get a procedure done and then you come back three months later and you have a complication, 
they might report that complication and that's how it, it works. But this doesn't work very well in the case of um, trans medicine because there are very few practitioners, they're very low profile. You can't just go back to a follow-up appointment so easily. Going back to a follow-up appointment might mean either staying in Colorado for three months or having to afford an extra plane ticket to and from Colorado. And the result is that the, the actual task of selecting doctors becomes very difficult because there's no transparent information about complication rates. Instead, it is largely done through sort of um, community word of mouth, right? So in the mid-1990s, way before what we think of as big data, a lot of trans organizing started happening via the internet. And one early uh, project which uh, Mel Wallace ran was what's known as POTS, the uh, Post-Operative Transsexual Survey. Outdated language, it was the early to mid-90s, but you get the point. And basically, it was a massive community-run and community-structured and sourced survey of people who had got surgery and what their experiences had been like with different surgeons. And you could use this to uh, inform surgical choices and decision-making. And it was also used to, amongst other things, actively push back against the idea that uh, trans people were rare and few and far between, because for a variety of reasons, all of the epidemiological data about trans people undercounted things in a way that community source senses of like, okay, how often is medical intervention being done made for a much more reliable count. And it also provided, if you look at the, the second question, a sense of uh, the success rates, right? Not just for individual surgeons, but overall which is pretty important when you are trying to fight for access to care. And one of the arguments that is always deployed is, well, people will just regret it. Like being able to show this big distributed survey of many, many different practitioners showing that for, for most of the, the surgeons, 0% of patients would choose to not have had it done now that they know what it's like on the other side. That's really, really powerful. And then skipping forward another 20 or so years, we have the question of counter-narratives and data, right? So there's a load of work, particularly by decolonial data uh, scholars, I'm thinking of people like Rob Cordry, looking at this idea of narratives and how they are supported by data and legitimized collection of data in, in turn. The classic example, right, would be uh, policing. There is a stereotypical idea of more crimes happen in poor neighborhoods, right? So then they put a disproportionate number of surveillance cameras in poor neighborhoods, and because there's a disproportionate number of surveillance cameras, pick up a disproportionate amount of crime, thus validating the idea that there's more crime in poor neighborhoods. And as that suggests, normative ideas of stories about what people are like can be really, really powerful in both good and bad ways. And as much as there is a extensive current fight over trans rights in the UK, in the US, in Germany, in everywhere, there are certain sort of normative stories about transness, right? Um, what Evan Vipond calls unsurprisingly transnormativity. So around transition itself, this looks like a very fixed sort of linear model of transition. You're always going from man to woman or woman to man. You're always looking to be a stereotypical member of one gender. You were born in the wrong body. First, you come out then you take hormones, then you take have precisely these surgeries, and then you're done, and everything is good forever. And this is obviously accurate 100% of the time, except about the 75% of the time when it is not in any way accurate. And a lot of the times, these narratives are wrong, and there are countless examples of how 
them simply being the norm has become self-fulfilling because if that's the norm, if that's the standard, then that's what doctors look for. And if that's what doctors look for, that's what doctors get. Because if you're faced with a choice between um, lifelong gender dysphoria and uh, lying to an MD who keeps staring down your top, you pick option B. And as the survey has shown, there's always been this strong presence of trans people online and this big role of uh, websites and web infrastructure in shaping trans communities. And often that's been a good thing. It enables things like the pots. It's also sometimes been a dangerous one. If, if you are on Twitter, then you can form community, but also people who may not have your best interests at heart can see you. And because of the, the sort of structure of the, the internet, the sort of uh, winner-takes-all model of uh, knowledge formation and of search rankings and everything else, there's often been a sort of default amount of normativity. Um, if you look at a lot of the, particularly the early online sort of trans presences of advice on transitions or social groups, you see a lot of the very conventional narrative of A to B, wrong body, like this is the precise sequence of things you should do. And not only does that limit the range of lives that people can live, but the actual uh, format, right? The, the fact that it's all online, the fact that the internet is a monetized space makes it really, really easy when you are sort of putting trans lives into otherwise at best agnostic platforms is exploitation. Um, one example of this very briefly is that there is uh, this, this uh, data set that was put together by a group at uh, UNC Wilmington that actually took trans people's transition timelines off YouTube and uh, stripped all of the frames out and used them to build facial recognition systems specifically designed to detect trans people. What starts off as a community resource becomes a tool of policing. And counter to this, there's this was this really interesting project called TransTime. And TransTime was this experimental social media platform. And it was used for transition timeline mapping and support sharing. But interestingly, it wasn't following that normative framework. It wasn't at all. You could arrange components of your transition in any sequence. It was designed deliberately as a non-confrontational and non-conflictual space. Um, and it was designed to enable non-linear timelines. And it was also designed in a deliberately non-commercial way to not only in the sense of not seeking to make money, but also in the sense of things like um, being deliberately hidden from the Wayback Machine or from Google scrapers or any other way that could be used to store this data and then reuse it in ways that the creators would not approve of. Now I say was, um, this is because it actually shut down a few months ago. Not because it failed, but because in a sense it succeeded. It's just that annoying thing of it was so good at protecting against the exploitation of trans people's data that I couldn't include any cool screenshots because it just vanished from the internet. Um, but I swear, I swear it was real. Some, some brief lessons because I suspect I'm over time. First is there's a tendency, I think, to assume that anything we're told is new is new. I think the example of Mel Wallace shows that this idea of data counterpower, this idea of the known overpowering the knowers, as Ian Hacking would put it, and using data and science to do so, is really much older than um, the fourth industrial revolution itself. And, and the, what we're seeing a lot of the time is, is more like evolution than revolution. It is a gradual accretion of new capabilities in technology and society. Another lesson is that sometimes resisting power looks like routing around it rather than fighting it directly creating new spaces that run counter to conventional norms. But at the same time, just like 
calling things dangerous and running away is insufficient. Ramping around power, but living in an otherwise power-laden environment can also be insufficient. It would be nice if trans time was still here, that it's not, and that it um, had to obliterate itself in such a way is a consequence of the environment that it is operating in. And, and in another world, as Ursula Le Guin uh, would put it, I guess, uh, to, to riff off the quote at the beginning, right? In, in another world, maybe we would be uh, looking at the project with contempt because we'd be like, why are you putting all these protections in? What a waste of time. Um, and it would be nice to live in that one. But in this world, the authors deleted it for a really good reason. But one that I think communicates that counterpower can't just look like creating parallel spaces. It also has to look like actually supplanting the infrastructure that makes existing in default spaces so painful and difficult and dangerous.